I am Dracula. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Welcome to Ticklish Business. We are reunited. Kristen, Samantha, and Emily, we are all back to celebrate spooky season and Halloween with our viewer's choice episode. You all had a chance to choose which spooky movie we would be talking about. Our choices were between 1931's Dracula, 1973's The Exorcist, and 1968's Night of the Living Dead. And wouldn't you know, Bella Lugosi won. And we have a great guest to help us celebrate. We have author David J. Skull here with us today, author of several books, including Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula, from novel to stage to screen. David, how are you? I'm doing very well. You're right. Thank this you. is my busy season right now. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to, to fit us into your schedule. I know that, yeah, this is definitely the time for you to be out talking about all your work. Before we talk to you about 1931's Dracula, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon, at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including double features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. Right now, we just dropped our special Halloween episode of double features, looking at three dueling versions of The Mummy. We're going to have another episode of our latest series, but have you read based on Phantom of the Opera? So we're going to be looking at the 1925 Lon Chaney version and the 2004 Andrew Lloyd Webber musical remake. That should be fun. And I will also have a very cool mini episode where I talk about seeing Priscilla for our Being Elvis series. We also give out regular care packages and movies and gifts and let you guess on an episode if you listen to our episode last time. We thank Allie Moore, one of our patrons, for jumping on to talk to us about All About Eve. You can find out more at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget, I and Emily are both authors. We have books out. You can order those wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art all designed by Samantha, as well as our friend Terrence Hilt featuring your favorite stars. We have our popular Makoko mug image up there, as well as Samantha's great Barbenheimer Bing Crosby art that we've done. So whether you like or dislike Bing Crosby, there is a Barbenheimer-esque image for you to slap on whatever items you want. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. So we're going to talk about Dracula. This is from 1931, directed by Todd Browning. If you have listened to our episode on Freaks, which, shameless plug, 
you can listen to on Criterion Channel, as well as the new Todd Browning box set that Criterion put out. Our Freaks episode is included on there as a bonus feature. And we've talked about Todd Browning before. This is an adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel, wherein Bella Lugosi plays Count Dracula, who travels from Transylvania to England to mess up the lives of a lot of sticky, upper-crust British people and falls for the beautiful Mina, played by Helen Chandler. But, of course, he is up against a worthy adversary, Dr. Van Helsing, played by Edward Van Sloan. I want to start with something, a different question to start us all off with. What version of Dracula was the first version you ever saw? The first one was um, a short version of Nosferatu when I was in high school in the 1960s. And it uh, played at the local uh, public library. And I was very frustrated because I knew about the Lugosi film. And I was not able to see it because I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, which during the years I was most interested in monsters simply weren't showing the universal classics on on television. So I read about them in the monster magazines and I went to, uh, you know, fan conventions and other people had seen them. But there, there was no home video in those days. There was no, nothing on demand. So you were at the mercy of, uh, of uh, what uh, local television stations were programming or what they had the rights to. I think created a mystique around Dracula for me because it, the harder it was to find, I more and more felt that it must be the best movie ever made. And it turns out it wasn't. It's a very important film. <laughs> it's probably the film I've seen more now than uh, any other. But that was it. And Nosferatu didn't look anything like the pictures I had seen of Lugosi and in famous monsters of Filmland and elsewhere. And uh, so I was really curious about it and took six long years, I think, from the time I picked up my first monster magazine until the time I actually saw Dracula and Frankenstein in a uh, in a theater. Beautiful new 35 millimeter prints in 1968. Eight, I believe. I, I was in the middle of high school, and that's uh, what I remembered. But I remember thinking, is this all there is? Because it, it was a much slower movie kind of movie than I had had imagined it would be. It wasn't like the novel at all. In fact, Nosferatu seemed a little closer to the spirit of Bram Stoker than the 1931 Dracula. Yeah, we almost did Nosferatu this year, and the reason we did not is because they are remaking it next year, and we figured that was apropos time to be talking about that film. So, listeners, you get an early glimpse of what 2024 is going to look like. We're doing a Nosferatu episode. For me, I come at this as a 90s kid, so I think probably the first Dracula I ever saw was Coppola's version from 92, which is very... Watching this version again, I've seen the, the Browning one several times before, but watching the the 92 version now, it's a lot like when we talked about The Mummy, Emily, how it really takes the story and ty- turns it into this tragic romance and like, he's a horrible human being. Well, he's undead, so he's not even a human being. The love there, like this tragedy. And I also was a big Gary Oldman fan, so that, that helped. So that was the version that I came to first, this very gaudy, colorful, operatic version. And so when I saw the 31 version, it definitely felt like 1931. You know, it's it's a far more dated, stagey. But I do love that I think what Coppola captures that Browning initiates is that stage quality to it. This is very much, you know, the camera is focused on that proscenium arch. You do feel like you are watching a play in a way. So if anything, I think Coppola is very different, overwrought version of the story 
was a solid way in. Emily, Samantha, what was your first Dracula film? You know what's really terrible? I don't recall. I feel like the first time I ever... Obviously, you know, you grow up with Dracula imagery throughout your entire life. And I was thinking to myself, like, would it be too glib if I said Count Chocula was like my first, like... Not at all. Imagery of Dracula. Like, I was born in the 80s. Like, that's what I remember. That's how I know the character, the accent and the mannerisms and the costuming and things like that. And that's just so depressing. And then I definitely was no no it isn't it's a it's a tribute to the incredible way dracula has penetrated all aspects of communication and advertising kids who've never seen the uh, lugosi film nonetheless if you ask them to talk like dracula they will manage something (laughs) to to approximate the accent but uh, you don't need to have seen the film to be totally totally familiar with uh, who this character is uh, like the frankenstein monster it's uh, it's just an absolute cultural icon it's so true that's something that i was discussing with my husband before we hopped on to discuss this podcast well this movie just so invaded our zeitgeist and made this book that had only come out 30 years 35 years prior it commodified it so well in a way that it's just really really interesting and i'm so excited to talk about it today but i would have to say that i i watched what shadow of a vampire which was like the fake making yeah. of Nosferatu that was right. that when that came out in 2000 and that was probably my first Dracula world kind of movie that I sat down and watched which you can also listen to our episode that we did of based on a true podcast where we did talk about Shadow of Vampire again just going to keep promoting that Patreon for everybody. Samantha, what about you? So I definitely come at this from a different angle, um, as some of you which might we know. always love. Gosh, so when I first became interested in the universal monsters, so to speak. I definitely started with Boris Karloff specifically. I just became so fascinated by him. I, you know, saw pictures of him out of the makeup and I have to admit, I developed like a little bit of a crush. It's one of the stranger crushes I have, I know. But I love Boris Karloff. I think he's so amazing. He just had so much range. So I really devoured those movies first. And if you come at it that way, and of course, I love Claude Rains and the Invisible Man. We were just saying before we started recording, that's like probably one of, if not my favorite universal films. So pretty much everything but Bela Lugosi was my background. So I actually did finally watch, I had never seen any version of Dracula at all until I watched the Bela Lugosi version three years ago, like almost to the day. And I think it's it's similar almost to the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford feud where you kind of have to take one side or the other. And by that point, I was just so engrossed in Boris Karloff. To me, I hate to say the fact that anybody equates them, I just think is ridiculous <laughs> because I feel like Boris Karloff could play anything and Bela Lugosi could play one thing. Actually, Lugosi was uh, quite a versatile actor, but he wasn't given the chance to show it off in Hollywood. Because That's he true. I will feel he's, yeah. he was definitely typecast. That's for sure. I had seen what's cra- even crazier. I had already seen like White Zombie prior to this and Plan 9 from Outer Space. So that was those are the first Lugosi movies that I had seen. And obviously, you know, you're not going to get like the best idea of his range from that or from Dracula necessarily. That's kind of how I I came away from this not being a Dracula fan or being a Lugosi fan, but I am a Universal Monster fan. Well, these these movies, the two of them together, and they've traveled, you know, kind of joined at the hip, not just in Hollywood, but 
going back to, you know, the theater as well. These films changed the way Hollywood approached the fantastic. There were no supernatural movies in Hollywood. There was, there was no real fantastic. And unlike Europe, where totally fantastic concepts were part of cinema from the very, very beginning with the trick films of Melies and, and all that. But in America, something strange happened. It always had to be explained away as the machinations of a criminal or a plot to embezzle a fortune or something like that. Dracula appealed to Hollywood because it was such a success on stage. They had never taken a chance with something so outrageous. Would the public buy it? Turns out they did. Dracula, the icons of Dracula and Frankenstein, uh, Karloff and Lugosi. This was the dawn of the talkies. One foot was still in the silent era. It's interesting that both these performances are silent film performances for the large part. They are, uh, uh, Lugosi does not have much dialogue. We remember every word he, he says. There was a silent version released to theaters. There is an aspect of pantomime and adds an archetypal kind of quality to, to just the, the, the performances. Perhaps if they were done later or not done at the same time by the same studio, they never would have latched onto public consciousness the way they did. And I think what's always fascinating about Dracula is how it really is one of the first real rights-based issue films, you know, that we we see because Stoker famously had his widow, Sue F.W. Murnau, in the 20s for Nosferatu, which was essentially plagiarized without anybody's permission. The courts decided in her favor, and supposedly all the prints were supposed to be destroyed, but thankfully they were not, and the movie is still allowed to go on, but... Carl Lemley did see potential and legally went about uh, securing the rights to the novel and, and did want this to be like a really lavish, silent film, like on par with Hunchback. And I just love that I think Universal paid like 40 grand for all the rights to the novel and the stage play. So they exclusively own the Dracula character, which is I started to think about like other Dracula characters that exist outside Universal. And I don't think there are any like they they literally own the character. That's not to say that we don't get a lot of vampire films because we do, but specifically that iconography of Bela Lugosi and the Dracula name are universal property, which I think is just really weird and cool in a lot of ways. Well, they only had partial rights to it. They had the right to make a movie from the stage play. They never controlled any of the stage rights. And so they didn't really control the Dracula image, the costume and the, the trappings that all came from Hamilton Dean's original British stage version. They didn't trademark character until the 1960s, and they got into yet another legal wrangle with Bela Lugosi Jr., an attorney who really uh, staked out some new territory and uh, the rights of actors and their appearances and voices and really changed the way uh, agents <laughs> dealt with the studios over these things. But it was, it was a soap opera from the beginning. Uh, Bram Stoker never lived to... He wanted to do it on the stage. He thought that Dracula would be a good part for his employer. He, uh, Stoker was a man of the theater. He managed the Lyceum Theater for uh, Henry Irving, Sir Henry Irving, the first knighted actor, and, and who we don't really remember all that much today, who turned down Dracula, and now nobody remembers Irving, and everybody remembers Dracula. After he died, his widow was living in kind of genteel poverty. Uh, he wrote many books, but only Dracula continued to make money. And so she was very eager to capitalize on the, on motion pictures when they came out. And Universal, in fact, when it was founded in 1915, Carl Lemley looked 
to Dracula as possibly, you know, one of their very first films. They looked at the copyright status in America, and it turns out Stoker botched his American copyright. The novel Dracula was never in copyright in the United States. This was kind of kept a secret by nobody had any reason to divulge this who already had a stake in it. Doubleday was the original publisher. But Stoker did not fill out the, the, the correct forms. He didn't give deposit copies to the Library of Congress. So it just started this, this messy situation. Nosferatu was an outright plagiarism. Mrs. Stoker, the widow, waged a battle royal. Went on for years. Uh, she, she got the British Society of Authors on her side. And they pursued the case in the, in the German courts. And finally, the producers of Nosferatu gave up. They went bankrupt, actually. And the courts declared it a plagiarism and that all copies and negatives be destroyed. Fortunately, that didn't happen because now we have one of the, the great works of German expressionism to look at. We almost didn't. I mean, it was really uh, crazy. And it, it took forever for all the scattered pieces of Nosferatu to come together in a uh, definitive restored production, which... Uh, We've only had in the last couple of decades. And then once again, uh, the endless, endless battles and the obsessive idiosyncratic personalities involved in this, I realized had the making of a book. It was it was a soap opera. These people were so, can we use the word batshit crazy? Uh, <laughs> everybody <laughs> thought they could make money from Dra Dracula. One of the agents who negotiated the stage rights back when I was doing my book, said he always dreaded any kind of negotiation over Dracula because it would bring out the worst qualities in everybody involved. Possession, control, it, it's, uh, and it's happened over and over and over again. So that was my uh, first attraction to it as a, as a book. And I thought it was going to be my first and last on the subject. It was kind of a side thing. I was uh, working in the theater in New York. Books on movies were not my, my thing at, at that point. Here I am all these years later, countless <laughs> books, it seems, on, on Dracula under my belt. It's been really, really fascinating to be involved in such a... Everybody's got an opinion about Dracula. Everybody's got something about Dracula they identify with. He has a real universal appeal. I don't think we'll ever quite get to the bottom of what Dracula does to people, all the levels on which he, you know, touches us and uh, pricks our curiosity and our attraction. And I think that that's what, even if you don't like the movie, which I know our mileage on the film varies depending on who you're speaking to, there is still something. It's a game changer in a lot of ways for Universal, the studio as we know it, and the monster film and, and all of these different things. And I want to talk about Lugosi because as we mentioned up top, this movie movie is cemented with him for good and for ill. I was looking up other people that were considered for the role. Conrad Veidt was originally supposed to play this character. He had done two previous films for Universal, and he returned to Germany because he didn't think his English was good enough for talkies. And then Universal went to Lon Chaney, but he was already going to do a remake of The Unholy Three, and then he died. And then they considered a lot of other people from John Ray to Ian Keith, to William Courtney, Paul Muni at one point, Chester Morris, a lot of different people. I've I've seen, you know, Ed Wood. So, you know, I know that the the role did put Lugosi in a lot of other performances that were kind of Dracula-esque. I always do have to laugh a little bit because I've read so many places and David, maybe you can tell me if this is true, but I've read numerous places that People have said, oh, if you saw the the stage version, you would understand how sexy and hot Lugosi's character and his presentation of Dracula was. And that's one thing that I never get in the 31 film. He's 
very committed to the role. Allegedly, that did have certain performers in the film turned off. You know, David Manners said that he was was seemed very distant. But I love that he commits to the role and he is so synonymous. He he makes that character his own, especially in the early half of the movie with Dwight Fry's Renfield, which we're going to talk about Dwight Fry in a second, because another person that became very synonymous with this film and is just such an unsung gem of this movie for me. I never get Lugosi as the vampires become very sexualized, right, over the last 50 some odd years. And I never get Lugosi's characters particularly sexy, but supposedly that was like a huge element of why he was cast. David, factor fiction. I don't think anybody took his sex appeal into it. I mean, there's this kind of factoid that Universal released the film as a tie-in with Valentine's Day. And it actually was two days before Valentine's Day, the 12th of February in 1931. But uh, there were no holiday tie-ins in those days. And I asked I taught a course based on my books at uh, Trinity College in Dublin several years ago, and all of my students were, were female. I think, yes, almost all of them. One, one, there's one guy. And I asked them, they were seeing this film for the first time. Many of them, most of them, couldn't even remember the Coppola film. They were just too young. They were toddlers when it came out. It was all kind of new to them. And I said, well, listen, there's this legend that Lugosi was kind of like a Valentino gone slightly rancid uh, in this film, but that women <laughs> would resist this performance. And so, ladies, tell me about this. What do you think? Was Lugosi a sexy character? And to a woman, they all made faces and said, ooh, no. <laughs> uh, standards of sex appeal, you know, change over the, uh, the time. He was, you see pictures of him in his stage roles, not just as Dracula, where he wore stylized green makeup, yellowish green makeup, which uh, would cut against that. But in some of his stage performances, he was smolderingly hot, but he was just on the verge of turning 50 when he did the, the movie for Universal. He is a magnetic personality, though. You cannot take your eyes off of him for a second. One of his friends, uh, Richard Gordon, the producer, told me that Lugosi was one of these people who, when he walked into a room, everybody stopped and turned. He just had this ineffable quality of, you know, macabre charisma. So there is, there is something there. He never perfected his English. His son told me that my dad never learned to think in English. And in the 20s on stage, he got into trouble a couple of times because he really, he was learning his roles phonetically. And if another actor would throw the wrong line, he'd be off, you know, off kilter for the rest of the performance. He didn't even start taking English lessons formally until he was doing Dracula on stage on Broadway. And he studied at Arthur Lubin, later director of Phantom of the Opera at Columbia University. It is difficult to learn a foreign language when you're, uh, when you're of the, that age. It helps if you're a kid and you can you're just like a sponge there was always that very deliberate manner of speaking that is not so much a Hungarian accent as a Hungarian actor being very careful about his pronunciations. And But you, anybody who's heard Lugosi as Dracula never forgets it. And every actor who's played the part on film or on stage after that always has to, well, what am I going to do with that Am I going to ignore that? Am I going to play against it deliberately? Am I going to? Because the ghost of Lugosi is just there whenever whatever the thing is done. Expectation. Yeah. Samantha and I, we we talked about this last night. You know, I she's not a huge fan of the movie, which we all come at this from different places and we, we love to agree and disagree in equal measure. But I'm curious, Samantha, for you, what do you think of Lugosi in this film? Because you are a big Karloff fan, you know? And, and I feel like, 
you have to pick a side, right? Everybody has to pick. Are, do sides need to be declared, I guess, is my question. For you, can you watch this being such a big Karloff fan? It's definitely not as much of an issue, I think, with horror fans compared to, like, I was saying the Joan and Betty debate. I think with Joan and Betty, you have to pick a side. And if you don't, someone's going to say something. But a horror fan can like both Bella and Boris and get away with it. As for me, I like Boris. <laughs> I, I, again, I just you throwing out the other names of the other possible actors, like Conrad Veidt would have knocked this out of the park i would have Absolutely. loved to see that the great missed opportunity i think of uh, that would have been genuinely time. terrifying for me i hate to say i and i'm really not a lot of people think it's just because of the accent i don't think it's because of the accent at all there are a lot of actors and actresses with heavy actor accents that i really love and i don't think they got enough like versatile parts because of the accent you know a lot of time they're boiled down to just what can you play with this accent i think hetty lamar is a really good example i love her i think she had oh, some yeah. but bella lugosi I think in spite of all of that, I hate to say it, the thing that I always say is he he was like a 1930s Tommy Wiseau for me. <laughs> I think just... He's uh, just so one note. But the, on the other hand, I will say there are definitely things that I take away from this film that I love. Like you're talking about Dwight Fry. I think he's fantastic. He brings a great performance. And I've always, you know, adored Helen Chandler. And I have a super soft spot for her because of the work that I did studying her. But Bella is just the sour note for me. Uh, the cinematography, too, by Carl Freund, I think is amazing. And so ahead of its time. Talk about defining the horror genre. That light that you see just on the eyes, that would be done so many times. It's still being done. So it definitely is an influential film and i will always give it credit and respect for that i just can't get behind bella lugosi i think he's just the least <laughs> terrifying figure i've ever seen in a universal horror film see well, which the, is weird because i always tell you invisible man doesn't do it for me so you know I which i know it does it for you he kills like over <laughs> no. 200 people <laughs> no doesn't do it for me uh so yeah i love that i love that we come at it from different places david you were you were saying something. I was fortunate to, when I started doing this kind of research and writing these kinds of books, really at the very edges of living human memory. And I fortunate, there were so many people who just never gave career retrospective interviews, you know, from Hollywood in those times. But I did get to interact and befriend three people involved in the 1931 Dracula. David Manners, who was, he got- He's our Jonathan. He's our Jonathan. They call him John Harker in this, but he's, he's Jonathan a, in the book. Uh, a thankless role because they basically gave the original character over to Renfield. Harker was the character who went in the, the novel to Transylvania to facilitate the Count's real estate transactions in London, barely escaped with his life. That was given over to Renfield instead. And so John Harker is this kind of ineffectual leading man type who was a role that Manners did a lot in Hollywood. He was arm candy for the leading ladies, not a, a great dramatic actor. In fact, he became very tired of Hollywood and left. But I got to know him fairly well near the end of his life. And his stories about Dracula were fascinating, especially when I asked him about Todd Browning. And he said, he said, it's funny you ask that because somebody asked me the other day who directed Dracula. And I had to say, I didn't know because Todd Browning directed no scene that I was involved in. He was kind of a shadowy figure in the background and only directing that I was aware of was that 
that uh, Carl Freund, the cinematographer, did. Uh, he seems to have stepped in, uh, taken over a lot of you know Browning's responsibilities. We're not exactly sure why. We think that Browning came back to Universal when they thought they were going to be able to get Lon Chaney along with him, steal them both from from MGM. Uh, Universal bought uh, Dracula, you know, not knowing that Chaney already was dying of cancer. One of Hollywood's biggest kept secrets threw Dracula into total disarray. Browning was, I think, he he didn't he didn't take to the talkies well. Greatest work was done as a silent as a silent director. The unknown. Have you joined Ticklish Business Patreon? You should, just like Ali Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hoppy, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Jacob Haller, Jonathan Watkins, Kimma, Krista Painter, Mick F, and Rachel Clark. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guests on an episode. You also get access to bonus features like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and our new limited series, But Have You Read That? It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. Which I was also involved in the new Criterion Blu-ray of that, and it's a it's it's a brilliant film. It's a it's a silent masterpiece. Browning was the kind of director he was involved in every aspect of those those films. Had a hand in writing the title cards and in editing the films. And with the talkies came you know the professional union. The responsibilities got it was easier to be an auteur, a complete auteur, in the silent era than it was in uh, Hollywood. Sound through him, and I think that probably had something to do with. Freund stepping in and taking over responsibilities. And Manners said that there was filmed with Freund over language barriers because his English was not that that great. And he had a translator who Manners described as a very formal Teutonic gentleman with, who wore white gloves at all times on the set. And they were simultaneously making the Spanish language version of, of, of Dracula. So that was also directed over language barriers. Uh, George Melford, the director, did not know Spanish. So he had a, a Spanish translator on the set at all times. This was, you know, the, the, the period of singing in the rain where people didn't know quite where talkies were going. A lot of it strikes us as very funny and it, and it was, and it probably, you know, seemed that way. But in the silent era, half of Hollywood's money was coming from overseas. So they had to adapt to foreign languages and for a while did these simultaneous versions because dubbing was considered cheating. It took a while for that process to get, get perfected. And the excitement of talking pictures was the possibility of hearing actors speak in their in their own voices. So it took a few years to get sorted out. Manners said that Dracula was an incredibly disorganized production. He and Helen Chandler basically sat uh, snickering, you know, on the sidelines through a lot of it. He insisted, I'm not sure I believed it, that he never saw the finished film. Uh, he knew it was a stinker the whole time it was being made. Why would he bother? But he was disenchanted with Hollywood generally, was trained on the stage, went back to the stage, became a novelist, well, a fascinating man until the end of his life. And he lived to be nearly 100. He was being just hounded by obsessive people, wanted to somehow get close to Dracula by getting close to him. He said one time a, a guy introduced himself as Bela Lugosi Jr., an imposter, and could he come meet him and talk to him about his dad? He was just, and when he realized what was going on when this guy showed up, he said, you're not interested in me at all. To you, I'm just a surrogate for Bela Lugosi. Get the hell out of here, you know? And somehow I approached him the right way, and he had a good sense of humor about about talking about it, but it was it's like getting into a time machine. I knew uh, Carla Lemley, the niece of 
the studio founder. We were good friends for about 20 years. She speaks the first lines of dialogue in The Coach, the beginning of the film. She didn't even realize she was in Dracula until I told her because she was doing bit parts. She lived on the lot with her family. One day they just called her and said, we've got something for you to do. Sent her to costume and makeup, put her in this coach, gave her a little travel brochure with some lines written on the back of it. Uh, she didn't memorize anything. She's just there reading it cold. So when I first I found out that she was in the film from a casting sheet and found out she was still alive, I called her and I recognized her voice on the phone immediately. This is the girl in the coach in Dracula. She still has the same voice. And I asked her about it and she said, Dracula? No, I was in the Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. And that kind of blew me away too. But we had a, we had a great, great friendship over, over the years. And Lupita Tovar, who was the star of the Spanish language, also spent wonderful time with me reminiscing about it. Had no idea that anyone was still you know, interested in these films. They're all gone now. And so is almost everybody connected with Hollywood that period. The Universal films are approaching their 100th anniversary. Nosferatu last yeah. year have its 100th anniversary. And for those of us who've been, been involved with it since we were kids, it makes us feel very, very old. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't let this episode go by without mentioning the Spanish language version because I just find that so fascinating that they had the American version filming on set during the day and then overnight the Spanish language crew would come in and use it. And and Lupita, I think she's just such a fascinating figure because she lived so long. I think she lived to be like 107. 106, yes. So her her involvement and, and the fact that her her daughter went on to be such a such a popular actress, Susan Conner. I mean, we've talked about imitation of life before. So basically it's like this entire Latina Hollywood dynasty that never gets talked about or heard about, but I just find it so fascinating. So I'm glad you brought up brought that up. No, re uh, and just recently, um, her son, the producer Pancho Conner, announced that a biopic was in the works based around his mother, uh, her marriage to Paul Conner, who originally was supposed to produce Dracula with Vite, really got elbowed out of the way. He, in many ways, was trying to upstage Browning's film. Wonderful and delightful, in many ways, very funny story. So we may be seeing a, seeing it all come to the big screen, you know, in another, in another way. But Lupita, at that time, she was going to go back to Mexico because talkies, she felt, was the death knell for anything she might do. In Hollywood, uh, she didn't speak English at the time. And so she had her husband had just died uh, about six months before I, I, I talked to her. He was going to give an interview to American Cinematographer magazine about the Spanish Dracula and the English language version as well. Just before the interview, he had a stroke that you know proved fatal. So we, he didn't write things down. She said, oh, why couldn't you have come last year when daddy was still with us? He had a photographic memory, so he didn't even... She had all these photographs. I mean, this incredible photo documentation of Universal in the 20s and, and 30s with no names written on any of them. And so she had difficulty identifying people. By the end of her life, she could speak five languages fluently. Conor had already fallen in love with her, wanted her to stay in Hollywood, and used Dracula as the bait. So there we've got the beginning of an epic love, love story. And one of the longest lasting marriages in Hollywood history, I think. What interesting people. And there were so many more stories that nobody ever went after, interviewed these people. You know, I uh, was trying to find, there, there must have been people who were, were just kids starting out who were on those sets at the time. And every once in a while, you could bump into somebody 
but it was all history evaporating like smoke. So I'm, I'm glad I did get to record the stories of so many of these interesting people, not as many as I'd like to. And that's really the thing that I think stands out about both this and the Spanish language. We should do the Spanish language version at some point because many people claim that it is better than the original 1931 version. I just love the concept that they were filming dueling versions of the same movies in Spanish. But I think that the supporting cast, you know, David Manners, we talked, Emily and I just, we talked about The Mummy, which was two years after he was essentially playing the same characters in this film, right? And to the point that I said that The Mummy is a very fun Dracula ripoff because it has the same beats, same cast, uh, aside from... You know, Karloff in the title role. Universal knew it had something that wasn't broke, so why fix it? Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it was a carbon copy. Yeah. Manners, looked, he looked much better in that film than he did in Dracula. Everybody in Dracula had heavy, heavy makeup, so they almost looked like mannequins. The, the film stocks of that time required that. They didn't have the panchromatic film stocks that let actors look more natural in, as the 30s went on. So they do almost look like they're wearing mime-like makeup. And Manners told me, he said, this, the lights were so bright that they, they absolutely hurt your eyes. You, you can only stay on those sets for limited periods of time. But in The Mummy, he looks like he's relaxed and actually having a good time. Well, and I think the rest of the cast is also having a, a you know very good time. I want to come back to Helen Chandler because I know, Samantha, you have such a, a great connection in a way to her. But for me, it's all about Dwight Fry as Renfield. I know that we just got a Renfield movie this year. Nicholas Holt plays the character. And I do, I did appreciate in that film that they make him kind of look like Dwight Fry, which is really fascinating. I think Dwight Fry is, is so much fun in this. He is the epitome of madness. He's got such an expressive face. You know, he, he had studied to be a concert pianist and just, you know, became an actor. And it's it's unfortunate that he died at, at 44 of a heart attack. But there's a moment in this when we talk about Dracula maybe not being as scary as it as it comparison to other universal horror films. I always get a little creeped out by that scene towards the end where the maid passes out and he's on all fours, like crawling towards her. You're not really sure what he's going to do. And we never really follow up on it. But I think that he's just got such an expressive facial feature and the way he moves is very fascinating. What happened in that scene? In the Spanish film, you see the, the complete scene in which the Spanish Renfield, you know, comes closer and closer to the maid on the floor, reaches up and he grabs a fly that's buzzing around her and eats it. And so uh. I don't know they cut that out. It would have been a very funny thing. Fry was a very popular Broadway actor, but joined this huge migration of you know people at the outset of the the depression, which hit uh, Broadway as hard as hit the rest of the uh, the economy. He was known for his for doing light comedy, romantic parts, and all sorts of things. He, of course, became typecast as the you know monster sidekick in a way he could never shake, just like Lugosi, because he made such an incredible, indelible. Impression. I, I think Dwight Fry is the most modern performance in this film, for sure. You yeah. see so much of what would go on to be the acting style in horror from him. I think even more than Lugosi, I would argue. Oh, he's wonderful in The, the Vampire Bat. I love years. that movie, yes. And I was surprised to find the candlestick 
holder in the shape of a dragon Lugosi carries down the stairs is sitting in full view on a table in the vampire bath. I was just oh wow blown away by that. Some uh, It was filmed at Universal on, on the lot. So some art director knew about the, that connection. Fry is not the only uh, thing there. But, but he was so well known that his son, who was also in the theater, who I got to know in New York when I was writing the book, he said people constantly, when they learn my name, you know, have something to uh, say about it or ask about it. And he said uh, he was in a restaurant and gave his American Express card to pay the bill. And the the waiter came back, kind of holding the card and smiling at it, leaned over and and, and did the, the, the laugh that, uh, you know, Renfield is remembered by but it, it's uh he steals the show you know i don't know how lugosi felt that way but uh it, it's the role everybody really wants uh, lou Ayers, the actor was originally offered part of harker and he turned it down because he said no i wanted to play renfield and they wouldn't let me so that's the best part and in the whole show. I will say, if people want another great, like, loving tribute to Dracula, another movie I grew up with is Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It. Peter McNichol plays the Dwight Fry character. He is very, it, very funny in it. That's the most perfect, perfect homage to Fry that anybody has ever done. It's, yeah, it's, it's worth it. Samantha, I want to let you talk about Helen Chandler real quick, because I think that she is our our main one of our main females which the thing that i am always fascinated by is that this movie came out in 31 and it's i mean the stoker novel was written in the 1800s but this is a modern day adaptation as far as we know it's it's set in 31 i especially because the woman that's lucy has such a jean harlow hairstyle it's very 30s and i'm always thrown by that because the novel just skews so much older but helen chandler is our heroine in a way in this and is pretty much the main female presence lucy is always an unsung like the first like slut shamed woman i'd ever seen on screen, you know, who's just like, I'm into Dracula. And they're like, yeah, well, you got problems. And then she is off for them. But I, what, what is it about Helen Chandler that you love? And uh, tell us a little bit about what you accomplished this year with her. It's funny you bring up Lucy because watching the movie this time around, I think it was so fascinating that you first see Mina with Lucy because they're almost like opposite sides of the same coin. Looking at them, they look like very similar types of women, but then Lucy is like, oh my God, I think Dracula's great. And she's just totally enthralled by him and probably impressed by the fact that he's a count. Mina just immediately starts mocking him. <laughs> and I just think that's so great. Helen specifically, I wasn't super familiar with her aside from the fact that she was in Dracula until I started volunteering at Chapel of the Pines, which originally had her ashes in their vaults. And we were going through all of the vaults. And of course, Helen, there are so many other people down there Basically, I mean, I don't, it's a whole other can of worms, but they're basically in cardboard boxes down there. And it's, it's kind of a, a sad situation that we're really trying to rectify. Just getting number one, everybody documented down there and getting some kind of digital database. But in cases like Helen and like so many other people, like Edmund Gwen is another actor who's down there. We think to ourselves, like these stars gave so much to us. If the families are on board, we want Want them to be somewhere where they can be visited and appreciated. And Helen was definitely one of those people that we wanted to take out of the vault 
And we fortunately were able to get in contact with her family and get them on our side. We were able to crowdfund and fundraise a really beautiful niche for her. And she just got moved this year, which is so awesome. She's now able to be visited at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The thing that I just have to mention that I think is so amazing about Helen, her family told us about is just how dynamic she was. She was definitely not a one note kind of actress and... Dracula was not even the part that her family remembers her best for or thinks that she's best in. There are so many films. They wrote like a really long letter. You can look online, like on the Hollywood Graveyard YouTube page, you can find our our whole funeral service that we did for her when we moved her. They wrote the the letter in full and her family talks all about these amazing movies that she got to be a part of throughout her life. Uh, She carried some leading roles and apart from Dracula and people don't know that. The, the film that her family loves the best is called Christopher Strong. It's a movie from 1933 and it has Catherine Hepburn. So that's another movie that people should check out if they want to follow Helen. But just the fact that she is someone that I wasn't even super conscious of being a fan of classic film. And then now, you know, so many people go and visit her. I just think it's such a great thing. I love it. I always love hearing about your work in the cemetery space. I think that's a great note to take us out on for this episode. All in all, I mean, I I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody. Dracula is definitely, for me, the granddaddy in many ways of that universal monster, even though there were silent films that came before it, but it sets the precedent for what we now know. And I think it's a lot of fun. It's not my favorite Todd Browning movie. Again, hashtag freaks forever. But I think that it is definitely one to see. Emily, what do you think? Final thoughts on Dracula? You know, I didn't get to say much earlier, but I genuinely enjoy Bela Lugosi's performance. I think it's an absolutely wonderful on-screen presentation of the actual lore of vampirism and how they're used in literature. You know, I have a strong background in literature, having done a lit podcast for many, many years. And I think that the comparison and contrast between Bela Lugosi as Dracula and the Renfield character is this really wonderful dichotomy of the character and how they work is human psychology. And I just, I think I actually really, really enjoyed this movie. I really did. I thought it was fantastic. Samantha? I mean, well, I'll say it's not my favorite universal monster film. I think it's definitely essential viewing. I think that goes without saying. I think everyone should definitely see it at some point in their horror journey. I think that there are so many memorable performances. I mean, of course, we talk about Dwight Fry, Bela Lugosi, Helen Chandler. So many standouts, just really pioneer cinematography and direction. I love Todd Browning, too. I think that The Unknown is my personal favorite as well. I'm glad that David mentioned it. But you know what? If you like Todd Browning, check out the box set that Criterion is putting out, because we're going to be on it, too. David and us, we get we get to share yes, we're all, all the-, the house party. Great. It is really great. It uh, hits the streets the 17th of October. David, take us out. Final thoughts from you on Dracula. It's a flawed movie. People don't like it when I diss it from time to time, but it's a very important movie. It changed Hollywood. It saved Universal Pictures from bankruptcy, along with Frankenstein. And if 
those two films hadn't been made, Hollywood history would be changed forever. The horror cycle wouldn't have happened. The science fiction cycle in of the 50s wouldn't have happened because it depended so heavily on Universal's uh, prior films. And some of the biggest names in Hollywood history might not have gotten their inspiration. So many were monster kids. Most of us didn't become Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, but some of us did. The, the legacy of those monsters is much, much bigger and more influential than many people appreciate. Listeners, you can let us know your thoughts on Dracula, good or bad. You can email them to us at ticklishbase at gmail.com, or you can send them to us via all social media platforms. We're on Twitter, I'm not calling it X, at ticklish underscore biz, as well as Facebook and Instagram at ticklishbiz. We'd like to thank David J. Skull for joining us once again. David, feel free to let listeners know where they can find you and anything you have coming up. Well, you can find me on Facebook. I'm about ready to relaunch my my website, but it's not quite ready right now. But I just recorded audiobooks of both uh, Hollywood Gothic and my Todd Browning biography, Dark Carnival. Uh, Dark Carnival will be coming out in a newly revised edition. It's been it's very going to be hard. back in print because I've been oh, trying to find this book for years and it is always expensive because it's out of print. You won't recognize it. I mean, it's been so they're going to be two two different. Centipede Press is doing this beautiful, massively expanded art book limited edition that will be uh, available and gone before you know it. So keep following me on Facebook and I will let people know the moment they can uh, you know get their bid on it. But the University of Minnesota Press uh, later in 2024, we'll be bringing out a kind of a, a permanent you know, library edition, not with as many pictures, but many, many more. There's something in it you haven't seen before. Dracula's been good to me. It hasn't been good to other people who've been obsessed with him. <laughs> Probably ruined Lugosi's career, although made him more famous than than God. Dracula Dracula very often will turn around and bite the hand that feeds him. You can't depend on him. You can depend on him to make money for somebody else very often. And that's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. You can once again listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I don't even know if Stitcher's still in business. Wherever you get your podcast, though, is where we are. Reviews matter, so leave us one on Apple Podcasts, please. Five stars. And as always, we are on all social media platforms. You can follow me specifically at therap.com, as well as on all social media at Kristen Lopez88. Samantha Ellis, where are you? Samantha Richardson, where are you? I'm just gonna start calling you all your your names at this point. <laughs> You can find me mostly on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, but you can also find my Cooking with the Stars post over at ClassicMovieHub.com. And you can find my blog at MusingsOfAClassicFilmatic.com. And Emily Edwards, what about you? I'm going to do a shameless plug and let you know that my third book is coming out in just about a week. It's called Viviana Valentine and the Ticking Clock. If you do like girl power, sort of 1950s noir mysteries, I would love it if you pre-ordered it. Please request it from your library. That's the best use of your energy. Uh, I know that the copies are really, really expensive. So library, read it, make it available to everyone. That would be fantastic. And if you'd like to let me know that you ordered it, you can find me on all social medias. More, more Blue Sky now than 
than anywhere else uh, at Ms. Emily Edwards. Just shoot me a little note and I will send your pub- your public library a huge thank you for, for bringing the book to the masses. And our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our latest Double Features episode on The Mummy and our upcoming episode of But Have You Read based on Phantom of the Opera as well as my mini video review of Priscilla. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And as Emily mentioned, she has a book. I have a book. You can order it wherever you buy books. We will be back on November 8th with a new episode in honor of Barbara Streisand's 982-page memoir. Don't worry, we're not going to be reading all of it. And we will be talking about the musical Funny Girl. Till then. (laughs) 